namo tassa bhagavato arahato samasambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samasambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samasambuddhassa madhang dhammang sankhang namasami well, before I mentioned it, just before the meal, but um, I've just noticed that my, my eyes have suddenly, seems to have dropped down a peg, so now when I look at people at a distance, there's a slight blur. So I can't get used to whether wearing these sort of glasses, which makes you a bit clearer. It's a bit strange, suddenly wearing these. A lot of people, when they give talks, monks and nuns, when they give talks on the Tamad or anywhere, they, they like the lights low. I know some people like the lights down, really dark. But, you know, I, I mean, I'm not a showman. I was always very shy of being in front of people. I terrified at school and never wanted people's eyes looking at me. Um, but in actual fact, once I started getting giving talks, I actually found that I actually used to want the lights so as I could see people. You know, even though I learned never to read their faces, you know, because some people are, some have to mind your mind. Some people have been going, you'd be thinking, you'd be kind of giving a talk, trying to open up. One part of your mind is going, I don't think he likes what I'm saying. <laughs> then sometimes they come after and say, oh, I like what you you said. So anyway. A, I haven't given a talk for a long time, not really. I was down in Devon, and Sunday nights, myself and the senior monk, I gen, I, forgive me if I sometimes put my glasses on, I'm trying to get used to climatize myself to glasses. Um, yeah, so we'd take it in turns, and sometimes Sunday nights, especially in the COVID, you know, one person would be there, or the Anagarika who's heard us speaking all the while and must be bored rigid with us. So, not giving the talk for a while. And then this, in this, I don't know, I said, oh, will you give a talk? One of the talks, when I came up from Devon, and uh, there was only four titles left, and it, I'd seen all the titles earlier, and I thought, oh, I've never given a talk to a title before. How do I do that? And some of the talks, like, how do you teach Paticca Samapada to your dog or something like that? <laughs> I used to see these ridiculous titles. But then there were four left and one was saying, don't be, don't be anyone at all. Yeah, yeah, I think this is, don't be anyone at all. And I thought, oh, that's all right. <laughs> then I thought, well, I, I just won't turn up, you know, because nobody at all. And I thought, well, Somebody think he's making a claim of being a Tathagata, a Thusgon. You know, the Tathagata is the Buddha, the Thusgon. So I thought, oh, well, I'll, turn, I'll better turn up. I think in the last few days we've had much talk about the um, Queen. It's still going on, all this with the Queen and what's going to the coronation. And of course, I was born, you know, I remember the coronation. I was born 1946, so I've sort of grown up with it. So you might hear me mention it, even though you might be bored rigid of it every time you put on the television. It's interesting to see different people's views and opinions um, about it all. 
But, um, I don't really plan my talks particularly, <laughs> so I go silent occasion now and then. Um, because my own practice is very simple, is, is, is reflecting, always bringing my mind back. Before I was a monk, I'd been a monk 32 years, and before that I was a layman with a family. So for 15 years with the children, I was, I came to Buddhism when I was about 27. It doesn't mean I'm incredibly wise. But even before that, when I was about 24, I became a yoga, Hatha yoga fanatic. I used to do four and a half, five hours a day of Hatha yoga. And uh, it was in a time when I'd come through the 60s. I'd been in the early 60s. For any old people here, you know, I'd been a mod. Pony faces at Rockers in Brighton. <laughs> um, you know, and I'd been a hippie, but I was a, you know, I was a hippie with an Italian sports car in advertising. <laughs> so I used to help with the adverts that made people want their bleached out Levi's and all the fashion of the time. But, and then in the time the Beatles, everybody's, he, they were TM. I, I was more, um, more avant-garde, you know, that rolling inside like two American avant-garde rock bands, uh, particularly at that time. Uh, um, what was I going to say? I forgot what I was going to say now. This is a nation of my brain. This is what happens when you've been listening to too many avant-garde American rock bands, you know. <laughs> After you've been listening to Captain Beefheart for years, you know, you find many of your brain cells have died out. Um, yeah, so the Beatles were into their TM and things like that. I'm going, I'm just telling this briefly a little bit. So I'd go to outdoor doc, rock concerts and, um, people would be smoking their dope and then doing their TM. And even though I was a searcher, you know, in my early, in my early teens, I was someone who was searching something. I couldn't take that seriously. You know, I thought you're either going to smoke dope and hang out at home, which I didn't particularly like doing. I'm energetic. So something like what they were smoking in them days made you just turn into a big blob and talk about changing the world when in actual fact you didn't have the strength to even get to the fridge to make another bowl of cornflakes. You know? So I couldn't take that very seriously. But through a set of circumstances, um, I came in contact with someone who had been with a guru. And as soon as that person started talking, I sort of got... Oh, I'd had a couple of experiences when I was young um, that indicated something was going on. And as soon as I heard this, this turned me into a yogi. So even though it was after the wild time of TM and all that, I didn't get into yoga and all that till 1970, really, about 1970. So, yeah, so back to mine. So I tend to go into abstraction quite easy. It's the nature of my brain. <laughs> That's why I never plan a talk. I knew I was going to plan this, and it's gone totally opposite. <laughs> so, but I've learned to trust that. I don't mind particularly. So my own practice has always been this reflecting back at myself. And it was at that time I really did have some, not serious insight, I'm not making any claims or anything, but I did have an insight into my, my mind, the mind which wasn't connected to things. You know, that, that, that there, there's a part of you which could be a, a silent observer of things. 
So because that went so deep, that kind of experience into me, that whatever I read, and when I came to Buddhism, I was so, I suddenly thought, oh, just through circumstances, I suddenly came in contact with Buddhism, and I thought, I've been introduced to the genius of the ages. You know, not that I'm against other religions, I mean, quite like Jesus, um, and especially Orthodox Christianity. Um, yeah, but everything seemed to indicate this always returning back and observing oneself. You know, letting go, basically letting go. So when it came time and I met Ajahn Samaino, Ajahn Chah, 1976. Yeah, in actual fact, we had the burial of the service for George Sharp last week, same day as the Queen died. And he, without him, as we said at the time, without him, none of this would have come about. So I always say, you, you know, the effects, the effects that people have in the world, you know, you throw a stone into a, a pond and you get ripples. Well, George Sharp, by the effort, selfless effort, since we're talking about this talk, is to be nobody. Selfless effort, he put in selfless effort, determined to get monasticism into England, Theravada monasticism. And I thought by doing that, his, if Kamma and Vipaka, the result of Kamma, you know, came in merit, is a reality, then the amount of merit that he has accrued is tremendous. I mean, I can't, if I start talking about it too much, I get a lump in my throat because it's, it's like he threw a concrete block into a, into a pond and made the way through, right off the edge of the pond and over to America, you know, all over the world. Um, so, so he done. And then, the, then after that, the Queen died. And there are many different reactions to the Queen. If you really kind of, <laughs> forgive me if I say anything to offend anybody, <laughs> if I say anything which isn't politically incorrect. I mean, I don't actually mind offending people, but uh, I do prefer honesty. And as this has been stated, so many people like me um, uh, about feelings, you know, <laughs> feelings. And I got the deep. I was, my father was brought up with Jews. I'm not Jewish. But he was in the rag trade, brought up with Jews. So, at a very early age, I saw my father get very emotional. So, my father taught taught subliminally, not, not intentionally, but subliminally by seeing how my father reacted to situations put in me. It was like the permission to have a free flow of emotion within myself and to be touched by many things. Um, yeah, so when the Queen died, you know, it's quite funny how uh, a lot of people who was always on about equality and everything like that, they seemed to be the more aggressive. They would say... Empire, the Queen, what is she? I, I read some terrible things. And, uh, you know, and I thought, and then some of them say, the Queen just sits in a palace, you know, and you think there is, there's someone who is totally, since we're talking about identity, this is, this is what this is still connected, it's all connected. There's someone who everybody knew practically in the world, photos all over the place, speeding me. I've grown up with Prince Charles. <laughs> in actual fact, Ajahn Amro, one year he took, he, he was invited to Buckingham Palace garden party. He took Sister Sundra, who's French, and I love very, very much, not, not in a bad, unhealthy way, but we've been friends since she was a dancer and I was a young guy in advertising. We've known each other since we were 27. And we laugh about how we're getting old now. 
And um, so, and then another year he took another senior monk who's, who's English, but not royalist at all. I can get quite annoyed. <laughs> he used to get quite annoyed. I see. I'm the most royalist person here. He's never taken me to the garden party, Buckingham Palace garden party. <laughs> you know. Um, but, but, uh, let me put that down. I'm fiddling with my hand. Um, but the Queen, the Queen is someone who's been seen all around the world. The most famous person in the world, actually, if you think about it. Um, visually on films. So you'd think, oh, well, she is somebody, a somebody. You know, not to be anybody. She is a somebody. But she's somebody who, right from her first coronation vows, which I was a kid when she said this, and I remember being at school, and I was seven, and a pretty little blonde boy. <laughs> and uh, when she took her, she vowed to give service. And, and people often say they don't really know nearly didn't really get to know her, you know, because she went right through 70 years of service, selfless service, and really never really gave away, apart from her sense of humour, which she had very good, and because I was in advertising, I was in magazines, so I knew people like royal photographers, you know, and I was around Princess Diana, got married, our place was open for tw three days, 24 hours a day, a photographer. So I was in that realm. Uh, so, so I'd hear different things and all this sort of thing. And then I'd hear what people think and then what, what go, what is, you know, not that either of any of them are true. But there's someone who gave seven, 70 years whose photograph is known all around the world, everything like that but was actually went through all her duties, vowed her duties to give service. And she, within all, the, within all of it, even in the most dreadful time when her mother and her, her mother had died and who else had died? Her sister had died and Windsor Castle had sweat light too. Now, as you see, well, she had a nice big house, <laughs> lots of them, but <laughs> um, even all these horrible things happened, she still, in that, she had a stoic, you know, a sense of equanimity, beating it in equanimity. And uh, I actually said to a monk a while ago, I said, actually, I said, if you think of Queen Elizabeth and also the old king of Thailand, these two, these two really fit the suitor's, the suitor's uh, thing of a, a monarch, what a monarch should be. <laughs> Somebody turned around to me and said, yeah, but she did hunt. She used to go hunting the queen when she was young. I said, well, look, nobody's perfect. It's only our aunt who's perfect. You know, and I've never hunted. I killed a bird once when I was a little boy and it upset me. Um, my brother had an air pistol. And I said, oh, let's have a go with your hair pistol. Let me see if I can get that bird. And, I, and the bird fell out. I went, oh, oh, <laughs> oh, I've killed it. Um, it's not that I'm totally harmless. But um, the these two, and yeah, so there was the queen whose photographs are all over the place, and you think she's definitely somebody, an identity. But it's not what she looks like; it's how how this is, you know, and her, and the fact that she was saying, shaking the hands of the old prime minister two days before she died. And as I say, they've blown up a picture of her hand, and I don't. You've most probably all seen it because it's all over the place, you know. And her, her hand here, I've seen many dead bodies, and. Her hand is black here with bruising, and her fingers are dead. 
you know. So men, she's getting ready for death. You know, you can just see see she's getting ready for death. But right, she insisted and on um, said to the, the next prime minister. You know, so there's somebody who, how we say, be nobody. She really worked. Her whole attitude of mind was to be nobody special, basically. You know, she would act as nobody special. And then people who met the Queen, you know, then would say, you know, totally put people at ease, was really gifted with people and everything like that. Really devoted her life to everybody. And this is being nobody. <laughs> the American guru, Ramdas, who some of you might have heard of, I quite liked him in the, in the early 70s. He, he was a, a psychologist who was around in the early 1960s. I know him from early on, 19, early 1960s, when he was Richard Albert and experimented in LSD. Which, if you were my age and you've gone through the 60s, you know something about LSD. And, um, but then he became this, he gave up all that, and he, he found the uh, teacher Neem Karoli Baba, Blanket Baba. In uh, India, and he uh, something sort of stuck in my. He actually gives a talk uh, in the early 1970s called "Seasons of Our Lives," and it's the most beautiful talk. <laughs> you see now, because he connects psychology, psychology with meditation and death. And everything. It's a very wonderful talk. Not that I was a big fan of Ramdas. He's a bit, bit gooey for me. <laughs> a bit too devotional. I'm more kind of, I'm quite emotional, but I'm really, that's why I'm a terrified monk, you know. <laughs> Terry Forest monks. <laughs> you start falling asleep, go and sit on the tiger's path. <laughs> you know, so I can't help the way this reacts. And uh, no, he gave that talk. But he just said a thing once uh, I heard. He said, um, when he was quite well known, I think it was, I don't know if it's the New York Times or one of the newspapers. I don't know if it would, would have been the New York Times. But one of them asked him to write his obituary. So, oh, what's the time I have to give you a track? Because I can prattle on. I'm a rapper. <laughs> um, he was asked to give a talk. He was asked to write his obituary. So he wrote, um, for the first part of his life, because his father was the president of American Railway, railway Line, so he came from a very wealthy family, um, first part of his life, he always thought the idea was to become a somebody. And then later on, and obviously when he met his guru and did the things he did, he said he realized, oh no, the idea of life is to become a nobody. And he said the very fact that he'd been asked to write that article, that obituary, meant that he'd failed because he'd been somebody to such an extent that they asked him to write his obituary. <laughs> I mean, the Queen wasn't asked to write her obituary, so she managed it. She managed what he didn't. In here, she managed it. You know. There's a story, there's a Zen story about that governor of Kyoto um, what was he know? Akagaji, governor of Kyoto, goes to the, goes to the Zen master, and he gives him a card, goes to see, and the attendant comes to the door. The monks have most probably heard these stories. I've got piles of story, little stories, ditties in here, which I've accumulated because I'm not a study person. I'm just, 
when you're 76, you, you get a bit like a, a Dyson cleaner, you know, you, you vacuum up all piles and piles of good stuff and rubbish. Um, but anyway, Akagagi goes to the Zen master who he knows and the attendant comes to the door and he gives him a tray and he puts his, puts his card on there. He says, Akagagi, governor of Kyoto. So, takes this to the Zen master. The Zen master reads says, Akagagi, governor of Kyoto. He says, no, I don't know this man. Just chuck him, don't, tell him I don't want to see him. So, the man goes back to the door. He gives the card back to the Zen master. He doesn't recognize you, don't want to see. So, Akagagi is quite wise person. So, he looks at, oh, I've made a mistake. So he takes his pen out and he scrubs out Governor of Kyoto. So he puts the card back on the tray, he takes it back to the Zen master. And the Zen master says, oh, Akagaji, I've been waiting to see him. See, when he went to the Zen master as a somebody, not open at all. <laughs> so I, I, I'm trying to think, there's a couple of others I heard like that, very nice. Very beautiful stories really illustrate that being a nobody. How do we become a nobody? We still have our personalities. When I when I first, because I've got a bit of a cranky person, <laughs> funny personality, people say sometimes, "How you've been meditating forty years? You've been a monk thirty years. You're still so speedy." And I say, "Well, if you'd seen me before." When I was in my teenage years, you know, I was faster than the sports car that I had later on. You know, I said I've slowed down. When I first became a monk, I wanted to, even though I was, I'd gone retreats, I wanted to. I was always after trying to crush that element myself. Speedy, rappy, my mind would go into abstract, you know, and, and uh, free association. What you'd call free association. I'd talk on one thing, then the next thing I'm talking about some holiday I had in Australia or something. And I think, how did I get there from there, you know? And I used to, I used to think, well, if I meditate more and more, I'll control this. But it doesn't work like that. Your brain doesn't function like that. You don't function like that. Your heart doesn't function like that. You know, so over the years, this is it, you know. Ajahn Samadha, when he first asked me to give a talk, you can give the Sunday talk. I thought, well, it took years, because I never wanted to be in front of money. I thought, well, because uh, I knew I'm no Lompo since he was 42 and I was 30. And uh, I used to call him Charlton Heston, look like Charlton Heston. You say, you look like Steve McQueen. <laughs> I said, thank you very much. <laughs> and, um, you know, we used to kind of laugh. And then, then, um, but I thought, well, it's taking all this time to ask me to give a talk. Well, you've asked for it, you know, when I get up and give a talk, you'll be to blame. <laughs> you'll be to blame. <laughs> so, so what I learned is that, that that is part of my personality, and that's not the part of you you crush to become a nobody. We just crush this constant the the note in our identifications, whether they're momentary. I mean, you could this this subject. I mean, I'm not a big one for even though I can rap, I'm not a big one for words. You know, if I give retreats in the daytime, I demand total silence. For me, silence is what does the work. Not what you can say, not what you've read in books. You can read rows and rows of encyclopedias. You know, Ajahn Chah said, you, I think it comes from something he said, you know, you can, you can read books and books about the taste of an orange, but you don't know 
you still don't know what an orange tastes till you shove it in your mouth, you know. So my whole thing has always been this. And then, and then having the faith in the quiet, and this is where meditation comes in, the quieting the mind, learning how to quieten the mind, not by repressing, we can repress. If we've, if we've got the paramilitary, you know, like I know monks, and I was with one monk who's very gifted, you know, um, in what they call jhana, where you, absorption or going to very clear, clear, beautiful, beautiful states of mind, which can exist, uh, you know, which people can just bump into or drop into or develop if you have the paramilitary. And then, then if you can do that, it's very, very good. Because then your hindrances, which stops you attaining that kind of samadhi, are put down. It's put down. And they, if you can have a minute or two of one of these states of mind, you know, for two weeks, you have no trouble sitting. You know, it doesn't mean that you're in that state of mind, but it means the, the after effect of that on the whole psychophysical phenomenon. It's affecting, but generally, uh, generally, um, generally, to be peaceful is to have the patience and to develop the qualities to be able to just sit. And like one of the monks, one of the younger monks, gave a talk last night, his first talk, and my hearing aid went oh, dead. <laughs> Some of it I had to kind of really look, just catch what he was saying. Some of the time, so, but he was talking about, and he's very speedy. He's a bit like. <laughs> Very organized. But then he said he's learning how to relax, relax. And I think this is what we appreciate in our life is that um, our whole body, our nervous system, our memories in our muscle, our whole body is mind, mind and body. We are a psychophysical phenomena. And then it, we have to develop these ways of people say, well, I don't need to sit down and meditate. I meditate when I'm walking, and usually a lot of that, what people say, is just a sort of a slick excuse for not actually sitting still. <laughs> you know, like this sitting still, just sitting still, and learning to just sit. One day on a retreat, one morning, people, their, their mind will become peaceful, and then they, ah, oh, this is it, I've cracked it. And then the next, next sitting, they come and sit, and they, their bodies ache, and their arms ache. You know, their legs ache, they want to move, they've got a restless mind. And then they say, oh, I don't, you know, I was getting on so well and now I've blown it, I'm useless, you know, and all that. And I say, no, no, you've moved on now, you're developing. Because what, what all these symptoms are, a lot of this, not all of them, come some in physical damage, but a lot of symptoms are your psychophysical, your nervous system's purifying. It's all purifying itself. And I, I, in Zen, they say, stop talking and thinking. There's nothing you'll not be able to know. People say, well, what's the point of that? You know, just sitting there trying to stop thinking. But it's amazing. It, 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 it's amazing when you have the faith and you've seen what happens when you do this, either in very small ways or in big, something you can have a big, what in Zen you call a satori. They say satori. And everybody thinks, oh, that's enlightenment. No, it's just satori. It's a momentary release, you know. Then they have the faith in that, that silencing, quieting. And it doesn't mean that thoughts stop or anything like that. It means there's an ability to be able to sit, observe the thoughts, not get caught up. Just continue. Now what comes out of that connected to this talk is that it's only by this, this kind of methods 
this learning how to slow up and observe oneself and be with oneself. We say come back into the present. Lumpur uses that expression. We all use that expression, come back to the present. Actually, in fact, we never is a, we're never out of the present. That's all there is. Is there anything other than the present now? And then if I move over to there, is there anything other than the present now? <laughs> over there. But what happens is that we get attached to what comes up. You know, what comes up. Thoughts of the future, thoughts of the past. Then we travel, so we create the past. We, create the, we are actually creating the present to a big extent. And, and we, we don't see this until... And, what, and, the, and it's only through that we actually start to see... It's only through that... This is all spiritual practice, whether in Buddhism or anything. I mean, I heard a man give a talk, very beautiful. He does icon carving, uh, orthodox icon carving. And I heard him talk about... Um, he was saying, where's heaven? And talking about... This is a very intellectual man saying about heaven in terms of very naive, like a child. It's up there and God's up there sitting up. And then this icon painter talked about heaven, what heaven is. And he talked about layers of perception and reality and the way we create and the function of Jesus, you know, Christ mind coming together from highest to the lowest. And it's all to do with mind, mind and that. They're very beautiful. So you've got this in other traditions, but it's just, you know, it's, it's just done different, done different. I'm not saying that the ultimate goal is the same, because at heart, I'm a Theravadan, Theravadan Buddhist, you know, I'm a, so I identify with that. I am a Theravadan Buddhist, you know, so that's my identity, you know, as a thought, in conventional terms. I call myself because that's how I'm dressed, that's how I appear, that's what I practice, that form of meditation. So, on a conventional level, in that, you know, on the ultimate level, we're all quantum mechanics. You could say we're all one. <laughs> I think Randaj years ago, he said about people up you know, especially in, and I remember them days, you know, well, it's not an admission to anything, but, you know, on a Saturday night, everybody takes something and they'd all become all one. And then the next day, he'd say, oh, oh, it's more it's your turn to do the washing up. And then that person, that person up levels. So they said, yeah, but we're all one. And then Randa, you, then you take the next up level. You say, yeah, I know, but it's your turn to do the washing up. <laughs> I'm sure anybody who's had any form of, <laughs> will understand this. You know, you can't, you can't mix the two levels up. The sad thing that's happening now, and it, well, I won't get too far into it, but now our world is becoming obsessed with um, identity politics whether it's nationalistic in that way or, or personal in the sense of gender. And I'm not, I'm not transphobic, not homophobic. One of my closest friends of 40 years was a gay guy and I gave his thing at his, uh, at his funeral. And even when we first met at 20, even later in life, he said, the one thing I've noticed about you, you've got no homophobia. Mm -hmm. So it's not coming from anything like that. This is coming from the, what, what the Buddha taught and what I've learned through through Buddhism, through Buddhist insight. And, and so now, what has happened now is a real mix, uh, to me, it's a real mix-ups of levels. It's taken ultimate, ultimately, the, you know, these concepts and all this, and then breaking what they call, uh, 
what, what would you call it? Um, de deconstruction, deconstruction. You know. But then, but then, grabbing hold of an identity, saying, I'm not this, I'm not that, so I can be anything. You know, so I, one morning I feel like this, or I feel I'm a woman in the morning, a man in the afternoon, or anything. You know, you cover, there's a hundred, there's now a hundred personal pronouns. So now what's happening is people go in those personal programs, but they're not doing it from a, a place of wisdom. It's not done from wisdom. They've mixed it. There's a confusion of levels of reality. And it's now becoming, it's now a point now, not only that, but, you know, and I don't, people can be whatever they like. You can, you can all sit here and think you're a great group of turnips. It doesn't bother me as long as you don't expect me to by the delusion, you know, to say, you're definitely a turnip, I will call you turnip from now, you know. Um, I, I, I won't do it, but, um, so, but, but now in society, and, uh, with, it seems like I'm taking a dig, I kind of am in a way, because there's a lot of destruction going on, because this is getting very much into, uh, I mean, this isn't on video, I don't know if these, are these videos, these talks? Are they videoed? Is this video or just audio? Just audio. Yeah, because there's a video, you can see my demonstration. <laughs> oh, I like the sensation, I like the, the simile of a, a, hand, a fist, and that's how I describe, like to a Buddhist to meditate here, we have a fi we have fingers, and you can, with all the lists of Buddhism, you can say, body, feeling, perception, conception, consciousness. The tension is sense of self. This is sense of self. So what we're doing is in meditation, we're observing this. We're seeing it moving around. I mean, you can't cut it all up, but this is what we're, we're doing. And gradually, this is starting to go like this. And then perhaps something will happen. You'll have a moment of oh, <laughs> a satori, <laughs> or you have some moment where you see clearly where you, what's happening here, or or you start to contemplate feeling a lot. And then you can do the same again. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Then you can fist. And it's always this process. You can take all the Buddha's lists, many of these lists, and land up, sense of self, sense of self. But when we, but you can deconstruct, and say postmodernism, you have this deconstruction. Right? But then what's happened is, is people are taking this and not really understanding, cons uh, Conventional reality, ultimate reality. You know, and in conventional reality, they're taking this and then they go, well, I am there. And then they're saying, I am this, I'm not that, I'm this, and I want to be identified as this. You know, and this is the most. And anybody who disagrees with this, like that Theravada Buddhist, he's a fascist, and we've got to stop him talking. <laughs> Whenever he gives a talk, you've got to rush in and demonstrate. <laughs> you know, because instead of seeing that we construct reality, momentary we construct reality. We construct reality while we're looking, our perception is all affected by it. Um, so instead of doing that and then realize, well, conventionally there's these and that, and you can identify with that, but it's only part of what we're playing with in this great game of life, or what American Indians would say, controlled folly. But this, but, but what, what is happening at this time, especially narcissism and this, you're getting this, and then this is being used to crush anything that disagrees. 
And I've, I've looked into it enough because I look at psychologists. I mean, I don't spend all my time on YouTube watching all these revolutions going on. You know, I'm interested in a few psychologists and a few spiritual people who I watch not too much, but enough to know what's going on in certain areas in the way this, the effect that this can have in society. Not now, but in a future time. In a future time. And they say, well, this is, it's very open and liberal to be like that. But as a Buddhist monk, I say, it's not what the Buddha taught. The Buddha's teaching was to transcend. It's the transcending of identity. There's a Zen, there's a Zen story where there's different answers to it. I think you could say men and men and mountains and mountains. I think the actual saying is men, mountains and mountains, rivers and rivers. I like men and men and mountains and mountains. While studying Zen, things become confused. After studying Zen, men and men, mountains and mountains. What's the difference between before and after? I say no difference, but after. Uh, the feet are a little off the ground. In other words, you, you can understand the before and the after. But there's another answer. It says, no difference, but nobody is confused by the terms. Now there's an obsession with terms. Terms are just, a, just concepts we use in another language. And, you know, different languages have different ways of explaining things, you know. I mean, I studied Egyptian, because I was an Egypt head from the age of 10. You know, before people, people, there's a lot of alternative stuff now around Egypt, but when I was young, nobody was particularly interested. I actually had a collection. I had mummified hawks, and under my shirt, I'd go to work with necklaces, you know, genuine necklaces from two and a half thousand years ago. I wasn't hippie. This is before, obviously, before hippieism. Um, but they have things like, when you study it, you realize people have got a different way of seeing things. They had lovely ways of uh, expressing themselves. Completely different to ours. You know. We say, "Oh, there's nothing there. There, there's, there does not exist." In their language, there does not exist. You know. So my expression is as Buddhist. I don't know how many people are Buddhist or spiritual, but this, this, what is going on now? Most spiritual teachings are. To transcend is the transcending of identity, not to take on another identity or to think that you've been put in the wrong. I'm simply anybody come here and I'll welcome anybody, you know, and I'm friendly to anybody, you know. So it doesn't come from a prejudice, it comes from my place as a Buddhist, you know, I'm called a Buddhist teacher, so. That's what I have to identify with. I don't feel like a teacher. I feel just as gormless as I did when I was 10. You know? <laughs> Consciousness hasn't got an age. You know, It depends on whether you're, how true blue Theravadan you are, because there's actually an issue around this. Is consciousness, is there a consciousness outside the senses, which sees everything, like a Hindu Advaita? Or does consciousness arise momentarily with every sense experience? So these are the two things. Is Nibbana a place, which is a not a place, and a, or is Nibbana nothing? <laughs> the two issues in Telavad. I don't get into these discussions. I leave them. You can think about it when you get home. What does he mean by that? <laughs> I mean, we affect reality just... just uh, they say normal mind is ultimate reality. To an extent it is, 
But to me, it's like a fly on a pane of glass, you know. When a fly goes on a pane of glass, it can see outside. I can see you, you know. I can see outside. But what's keeping it covered, what's keeping it enclosed, is the pane of glass. And the pane of glass is, it's like our perception. It has, we've got layers and layers of fine perception which hold this reality together. It's only when mind through, through, a, through insight, through a real clear insight, not into Nibbana, but a, just a clear insight, um, knowledge, that, that that pane of glass thing, whoop, and the mind suddenly sees, oh, you know, suddenly realize the whole thing's meaningless. This world is, on one level, this world is meaningless illusion, no better than a hologram. And that has an effect, has a deep effect. And you can then start to understand this conceptual reality is ultimately We use concepts like we use a cup or something like that. And even the Buddha uses the, the analogy of the car. You know, you've got the wheels of the car, the car, the horse, the this. All of the whole thing together is called awesome car. <laughs> but when you pull it apart, nothing there, nothing there. I don't know what this has got to do with being nothing. <laughs> but if when we, when we meditate and we can open up, we start to open up. Then there is, someone can see the space in here, starts to see the space in here. But that can seem rather boring. A really clear mind can seem rather boring because the whole nature of this realm the Kamaloka is is uh, of, is the round of coming to be. You know, you sit, you, know, you sit, and you, a person can have a, a moment of insight or a, or a samadhi, a samadhi moment where, for a moment, they can drop into samadhi, and for the first time they see it, they have a drop into samadhi. Mind lets go. And usually, when that if someone has that kind of insight, just before the insight is. A tremendous fear of extinction, death, fear of death. But hopefully that they develop to a point where, where within their practice, the conditions are there for the mind to catch that fear at the moment. Then they have a moment of moment of clear, clear seeing. Then what happens is they withdraw, and then suddenly the mind wants it again because that's the nature of this realm. <laughs> it wants to be the, that brightness or a clear clarity or something like that. And as soon as it does that, it invents this pane of glass which goes, cuts, cuts us off from that kind of seeing. It's not that I walk around like that. <laughs> Don't get that. You're not projecting anything. Most long-term meditators had their moments. It doesn't mean they're enlightened. You can actually intuit anatta, if they intuit anatta, not self, you know, as an experience, because you can interpret not self in different ways. Not self is an experience, it's a glorious experience of light and space and nothing and nothing. No, it's just seeing that there's things empty, you know. And someone can have an insight knowledge into not-self. It doesn't mean that they're a sotapanna or, or enlightened. My father came, my father, he was in the war, um, uh, on mine, mine looking for submarines. And then at the end of the war, I think it just got, got to him in the last year. And then his ship got sunk. Not, it wasn't sunk by a German submarine. It hit a reef, actually. <laughs> Went all through the war. 
and then the ship got sunk by hitting the reef off of South Africa. And there's actually a book about my father's ship. And in the pic- on the back of the book, there's a picture of all these sailors on the beach looking at this ship <laughs> you know, sinking. And I thought, that's my dad. You know, I could recognise him from the back. You know, he was 35 then, and it sort of, it, it right put all the that. Or Seaman Alfred Endrick, you know. But he had a breakdown, it had a total breakdown after that. And then it was beginning in 1945, really. So they invalided him out. So, so, and my mother said he always, he was quite speedy. And I often think because I was conceived after he came back from war, that within my gene structure, I inherited some of his, uh, you know, nervous reaction that had been left from the breakdown. <laughs> I'm very grateful, actually, because he was really nice. <laughs> my dad was, I've got no arguments with my dad. Um, but, you know, he had some funny things, he was very sensitive, and then he came out from the town. I was visiting them once. I was married and living. I came out, and my dad had just came out from town, and he looked, he looked ashen. And I said, oh, what's up with you? He said, I was coming out of, and it can happen anyway, this is what coming out of Luton. This is in Luton, you know, the last place to think to have a revelation is Luton. Um, <laughs> but uh, I make jokes about Luton, even though I love, I love Luton. <laughs> when you're born in a place, you've got a connection to it. And uh, he said he was coming out from Luton, Luton Town Centre, and he said, I suddenly, for a few moments, I became aware of my own nothingness. And I could tell by the what he was saying that, that, you know, he had experienced nothingness. It wasn't the case I felt like I was no one. You know, you go for a job and they say, I'm not giving you the job, you're a nothing. <laughs> you're nobody or someone says, you're nobody. Not like that. He'd actually had an experience. And he said, it just freaked him. And he fell in some bushes outside someone's house. You know, the experience. And when he came back, I, I said, no, don't worry, Dad, have a cup of tea. I said, selfie's back now. I said, it will come back, some back. I said, it never comes back. You wouldn't be, you wouldn't be worrying about it. Because <laughs> there wouldn't be a self there to worry, for you to worry. I said, and there's people in India breaking their necks to have that sort of thing <laughs> happen to you. You've had a, you've had a kind of insightful experience. But this is all towards being a nobody. Every time you see yourself in the day, you react, we react, what's oh, You react to people or see where you are in it. That sense of self comes in. Either self-righteousness, you know, you've seen, I've talked about identity politics, you know, my own sense of self-righteousness come forward there. Not too much, I hope. I'm putting over a kind of a different, you know, I'm quite open to be wrong. I hope I'm not wrong. <laughs> but, you know, so your own sense of self-righteousness, or especially self-righteousness, is is a particularly thing. Man. But all, all our all our identities, we can see our identities during the day. We take on several different forms of identity, and at the end of the day, we don't know. Ultimately, we are. I heard about something in a theatre the other day and I said, oh dear, soon they're going to make, because of the Buddha or because Jesus, you know, well now they're trying to say Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene and went and lived in France or something and created the Knights Templar. <laughs> I hear some funny things. When you're in a monastery you hear some funny trips that people are But, but um, you know, you talk about, say, what's the name, androgynous, androgynous, 
I'm, I'm actually done a sculpture for the nuns of a, the mother of the Buddhas. And everybody likes the face on it. Even I like the face. I think, I think a day return went up my arms and helped me with the face, you know, because it happened in a strange way that I got this look on the face that everybody likes. And uh, now I'm making a statue of the Buddha and I'm doing exactly the same face because it's an, Andromenus, Andromenus, what do they call it? Andronogous, is it? Andromenus, that's a planet, isn't it? <laughs> Androgynous. The Alpha Andronitus. But because, because the Buddha, you see, they always say, oh, soon they'll be making a film about the Buddha, you know, that he was non-binary. <laughs> you know, he was non-binary. He wasn't non-binary. He was a bloke. <laughs> you know, he used to be a warrior and all that. <laughs> They did a play, they've done a play lately, where, haven't they, where they've said Joan of Arc, they made Joan of Arc non-binary and she refers to herself as we. And I got to admit, my sense of self, my sense of self did actually get involved in that because I studied Joan of Arc. I've studied, even though I don't speak French, I'm not a very good reader, I suffer from word blindness, but I have, I'm very dyslexic, but I can, you know, sort of 11 years of age, I was copying Leonardo da Vinci drawings. My uncle's got a picture of me in my short trousers holding up a Leonardo da Vinci. I really thought I was something then. <laughs> I was truly identified with being the best boy in the county at drawing. But, but anyway, but when I got into, when I get into something, I really go to find out about it. You know, like other religions and the problems in the world. I sometimes make a point, you know, with Islam, all the things, Islam. I made a point of reading the Quran, the life of Muhammad. You know, I like to actually find out information so people don't spill their stuff. You know, I can say, hang on, I think you're a bit off there. <laughs> you know, so they made Joan of Arc non-binary. And I got, well, we do express things in different ways and we do have funny, funny things. I mean, you had Monty Python and the life of Brian. So I shouldn't really be, but because I took it a bit personal that because I'd studied the trial documents of Joan of Arc. I'd read a lot about John, a lot of, she was the, the greatest of the, what they call the hysterics. So you get the word hysterical from In the 14th century. You had women, it was women were more inclined to have visions. Visions and see saints and things like that. But the thing is with Joan of Arc, without getting into Joan of Arc's life, she was actually right in most of what she said. You know, she was spot on. And uh, the English arm, the English are still bitter about it, you know, that she had come on the battlefield in her army and all the English soldiers had leg it. <laughs> They'd all run away and she came because they were frightened of her so much. So I did, I, I did take that a little bit personal because I thought she was not non-binary. She was a devout Catholic. You know, she dressed as a bloke because she, she moved with the army and she was sleeping in the same places where soldiers were sleeping. She wouldn't even know what a non-binary was. She was absolutely devout Catholic. So anyway, so it's good to be clear. You know, the Buddha was was in transcending self, transcending identity in this way. And when we when we are meditating, when we learn to meditate and sit quietly, it's observing ourselves so that we can see that we are transitory phenomena. You know, we need one thing or the other. No, we're not men, women, anything like that. But on the conventional, the conventional term, the conventional realm, we've taken, we've taken on certain characteristics. 
and within those characteristics, say in the conventional realm, men and women here, but in the conventional realm, mind-wise, we can be anything. You know, you can. Someone can be gay or lesbian or think a woman, and that's entirely your 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 choice. You know, that's true. And I say, one of my best friends was totally totally gay, and uh, my wife used to get quite annoyed about it. But not because he was, he was after me. It's just that we had been friends so long and he was so good looking. My wife said, well, he likes, he prefers, you know, in that way. She said, he fancies you more than he fancies me. He's very, he's so pretty. We used to call him Dorian Gray. You know the story of Dorian Gray with this portrait? Dorian Gray has a portrait in the attic that gets old and he stays young and good looking. So we used to call him Dorian Gray. And, uh, Occasionally I'd meet him up at the British Museum, I'd go from here on the bus and we'd go and see an exhibition in the British Korean exhibition. And he liked Buddhas, he made the most beautiful Buddha. And I said to him, I said, he's dead now. And uh, I said, Frank, I said, it's very funny, I said, I've gone grey, everybody's gone grey, and your hair seems to be that same fair colour that it always was. Of course he was wealthy, he could pay a lot of money for things, so. He just says, that costs £30 a week, ducky. <laughs> <laughs> he says, oh, "I go and have it done every week." <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not criticising. I'm not saying that if you're gay, you shouldn't be gay. You're a bloke. You're in a bloke body. You know, you should like football. I know, I hated football. You know, I went to school the back of Luton Town Football Ground when they were in the cup final, and my friends used to say, "Oh, come up, go to one football match. You'll love it." And I remember getting there. I was there ten minutes, and I just said, "God, I'm going home." Playing my train set, I can't handle this. I hate it. So you can be whatever you like. And conventional, it's when you take that and say, well, everybody should be this, and you should recognize me as this, and da, 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 da. it all gets totally, it confuses everybody. It confuses tremendous, tremendous amount of confusion. So, from a Buddhist point of view, transcendence. I don't know if I, I hope I haven't upset anybody. I hope nobody's going to go away angry with me. You can always ask me questions in a minute and you can insult me and everything. And I try not to take it personally. But I can be violent. <laughs> so it's always this observing oneself. How do we observe oneself? Even when we sit meditation, how I should talk about meditation now, shouldn't I? I've only got three minutes. They say an hour, I might go over a little bit. But when we sit meditation, I remember meditation going on my first retreat and I'd had some sort of ex funny experiences before that and uh, through my history and um, I thought, uh, once I, I went into a meditation cell, Mahasisada practice, where it's all this, and my speedy nature, oh, I hadn't been meditating very long, I went on one of these Mahasisada retreats, 18 hours a day, sit walk, sit walk. Everything is slow. I remember doing walking meditation once, then turning towards the cell and thinking, oh, I'm never going to get to my door, you know, never. Even though all the intention had gone, everything had gone. Then, because I went into a thing, I thought, I'm going to go raving mad within two days. I've been running like a wild horse, you know, for 22 years. <laughs> years now like this but um, I actually got, got got well into it 
But, but, but I did actually, I got very inspired by this first week and I immediately thought, well, I'll crack this within about two years, you know. Give me two years, a few of these retreats, I'll be out the other end of this. No, no. <laughs> I'm 76 now. And I still like, I sit down. And sometimes some obscure rubbish comes up in my mind. But it, it goes and gradually just slows down. So, so even there, sense of self gets in, you see. I sit there and then I'd be thinking, I'm going to crack this, you know. Paul Endrick is going to be the first fully enlightened Arahant in Luton, you know. And then you, then, then if you have something happen, nice experience, we cling to the experience. Most long-term meditators, and most of the lay, lay, there's some great meditators and people like Joseph Goldstein, all these very great lay Buddhists, it's not only monks. And most of us will admit, when they, when they first have some sort of insightful experience or something, you then suffer from vipassana kilesa. In other words, your ego structure all comes up and builds up on that, on that. And it starts wanting to recreate that. They think their whole life is going to be this, like a breeze, you know. <laughs> it's a famous, it's a famous piece of dialogue called the Naz. It's Jesus, Jesus the Naz. Oh, he knows the Naz. It's got long hair. I bet he's heard the Naz by Lord Buckley. Have you ever heard the Naz? I'm going to lay a cat on you. So cool. <laughs> I listened to him in nineteen. 60-something. <laughs> I could tell by your hair. There's <laughs> not many people have heard of the Naz, actually, of Lord Buckley. Um, yeah, but actually it don't work like that because the ego structure gets involved in it. To me, that's what happens in some religions and with Guru. That's why. For me, the Buddha has always been, from the time he was born, uh, fully enlightened, he became, is impeccable in conduct and understanding. This is the other people thing that people don't understand. In Buddhism, people talk about sila, you know, morality, or people say morality, science, on the level of quantum mechanics. There's no such thing as good or bad or morality. You create it, you create it all in your mind. But like a computer, when you want the right result on a computer, you put in a certain program. And if you make little mistakes, you get wrong answer pop up. And then I'm terrible on computers, so I'm always going to our computer nerd. We got, we got normal bhikkhus, and then we got computer nerd bhikkhus. We've got special abilities <laughs> with computers. So you have to put in, on the level of computer programming, you have to put in certain conditions to get what you want. And this is where in the, I'm going I'm to make this point, even though it goes on a bit. In the world today, we have so much talk about mindfulness. You know, we're mindful. And then on the we're mindful. And even Parliament has got, they've got a mindfulness rule where you go and you be mindful. But most of these are talking about attention. For mindfulness to become like a mirror and start reflecting the world, it has to be the mind which is freed from unwholesome states. And it, to be freed from unwholesome states, it has to be freed from greed, hatred, and delusion. And for it to be freed from greed, hatred, and delusion, it has to work with working with the conditions of the world. This is sila. And every everything you do, most of it, I don't know, you all look like a good bunch. But most I can reflect on my life and see the bad results have come from bad things I've done. You know, and I can see 
there's a couple of things that I've done which I still feel guilty about. I can still feel, re- you know, I feel remorse for them. I mean, the, I, I can let go of them. They're not dreadful. I haven't murdered anybody. <laughs> like that. Um, you know, I'm some dreadful things, but enough to make me, that it can come out and go, oh, you, you, you shouldn't have done that. Why you did that? <laughs> you know. Um, so this is here. So on the condition of wanting to see into oneself and to want to see beyond our normal perception and to the, to the true nature of things, you have to set up certain conditions. This is sila. This is when you do it with sila. My first teacher was a layman who had been a monk in 1953. I asked him, because when I arrived, first went to Buddhism, you know, I had a big long Afghani coat, long black hair and earrings. You know, so I was... Even though I was good, I was a yogi, you know, so from the time I took up yoga at 24, I kept, I mean, I, you know, not a drop of beer or, not that I was a drinker, I didn't drink and I didn't like beer, it used to depress me. If I got drunk, I'd start crying <laughs> for depression, I just get depressed. But, but so I always say, oh, I've been clean since I was 24, it's pretty, so I think I've done, done well in this life in that respect. Um, but I said to him, and I said to him about drugs and psychedelics, and then he said, well, I admire their courage, but doubt their wisdom. You know, and that's what I say to people. There's that ongoing wisdom is our ongoing progress. People can have something, and I don't, I not encourage anybody to do anything, but people can, they're experimenting now again with, say, psychedelic drugs, but under medical supervision with people who've got some real problems. And I don't knock it. I don't knock this because people can have insight. I believe people can have insight in these conditions. I know, just I just know. Um, but it doesn't mean they've got the, the ongoing wisdom which is going to liberate them completely. They can have an experience which will turn around 365 degrees and turn them into a yogi or a whatever. But it's usually spiritual and good unless they go right off and become like Charles Manson, a controller, a freak. You know, but that's wrong. No wisdom. There's no wisdom now. So it's the ongoing wisdom which is a thing. It is, people, people can take a drug and they can see, they can see they're not self and then they go and do everything they're not self. They do everything they think a not self would want to do. <laughs> and then they wonder why they suffer. And I think what happens with a lot of kind of new age guru types and, and has happened to some great teachers is that they, they're at a point and then they can think that they think that they can be mindful for everything. Then they will start abusing or, doing things, and then it all collapses, everything collapses. They've created conditions in the world which they don't only muck their self up in the future, they muck, they influence the whole world, they influence a whole sphere of people, damage a whole sphere of people. This carries heavy vipaka kamma. You know, so when you've got the Buddha and the Arahants and people, they've got impeccable in wisdom and understanding, in, you know, uh, ethics and understanding. They keep that purity. And keep that purity of sila, good sila. So, the mindfulness, a safe way, I always give the demo, they've heard this most probably, they've heard me say this a lot, because I always give a demonstration, a safe breaker can go for a safe and he gets his thing. and He's got tremendous concentration, tremendous concentration. But he's not going to suddenly see into Adatar. If suddenly there's something in his past, parami, from past life, that suddenly he became freed from greed, hatred, and delusion in that moment, he could suddenly go, 
And people have had this kind of experience. You know? But that's because they've got past parami which has done that, which has clicked on like that. Uh, when I was in Australia, the interesting story, there was a, um, there was a, up the road from where we lived, this is all to do with giving up self. <laughs> Even though it might sound I've gone on an ordinary dhamma talk, but it is to do with giving up, giving up self. Because this is what meditation is. Learning how to give up, how to let go of self. Um, there was a prison up the road and they were doing slaughtering. They used to slaughter animals up there. And nobody, nobody wanted to just look. The slaughter man, he either got released or something happened. So they wanted someone to do a slaughter man. Ajahn Brahm told, because I lived with Ajahn Brahm in Australia for two years, so I got a lot of love and respect for Ajahn Brahm. And um, he said he'd gone up there, a Buddhist group, a guy turned up, and he had tattoos before they were trendy. He didn't have nice trendy tattoos. He had little flowers and all this. He had things like height. <laughs> you know, this horrible stuff. And scars all in his body and everything like that. He turned up to this Buddhist group, and uh, Ajahn Ram said, have you heard this? Have you heard this? <laughs> he's in the desert. But um, yes, it's, uh, Ajahn Brahm said, oh, he said, he said, and this man started to tell him what had happened. He said, he was in the prison and he'd been brought up violent, right from you, right from uh, abused by father, all this, and he was a mercenary crook, you know, nasty, you know, violent person. He said, then when he heard the ban and do the slaughtering, uh, had gone, he said he volunteered to do it. He said, I'll kill them, bloody cows. Big Australian accent, big Oz. I'll kill them. Give me the gun. I don't care about that sort of thing. And, um, I'm good at imitating. <laughs> and, uh, so he gets up there and he said he's there with the gun and the, the animals are funneled in and animals know when they're going to die. They sense it. So the cows, the cows go to either side of the thing. They're all trying not to go because it's like they intuit where they're going. And he said, suddenly in the middle of this, this might make a lump to me throat when I get through this. In the middle of this, a cow comes right walking down the middle and all the other ones are pushing up and this cow is just, is that good? Sounds like a cow, look like a cow. And uh, comes turning down and the cow came right up to where it was gonna, he was going to shoot it and stun it. He said, and the cow looked up in his face and the cow had tears <laughs> pouring down his face. <laughs> and he said, he said, and he went like that. And suddenly he dropped the gun, <laughs> you know, and he threw the gun and he just said, never again, never again. And this, the way this cow acted, it's like it had gone right through all that and touched this guy. And he said, and immediately after, he said, I want you to find out. He said, and I heard a Buddhist group comes here with a monk. He said, and I decided to come along. <laughs> it's really lovely, you know, a moment just turned him, turned him round like that. Which is a very lovely, very touching story. <laughs> we did have, a, we had lot, lot, just another funny story. We had lots of little calves and all that would come down on lorries and they were either going to market to be sold or something like that. And what happened was, one of the lorry, I'm going to have you all in tears in a minute, she's near to <laughs> um, One time, a, I think it was a calf, a little calf, jumped off the lorry and ran into the monastery. 
And they stopped the lorry. They realised something had happened. They come into the monastery looking for the cow and all that. And we're going, I'm saying, no, you can't. This is sanctuary. It's a sanctuary. The cow is running here for sanctuary. <laughs> I mean, they did take it. They wouldn't buy that. It's like a Christian church. It's sanctuary. You can't take him. <laughs> but they did. So, someone, so, so this, the sealer, this sealer, I mean, you don't have to become a monk, but, you know, precepts, five precepts, doing good, refraining from evil. You know. And also, I mean, also we, 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 through meditation, we start to be able to let go of those, we have to, we let go of those times in our life when we have done things which have been not skillful. And then when we do wake up a bit, we can reflect, we reflect on our lives and we see the things. But then we can, we can have compassion for ourselves and realize then, you know, you were, you were ignorant then. Would you do that now? Would I do that now? There's a couple of things I've done. I think, would I do that now? I think, no, I wouldn't dream of doing it now. I've hurt, really hurt someone's feelings. You know, nothing, I haven't killed him or anything like that, but really hurt someone's feelings. I said, you know, I do that now to someone. This person was a close friend, they were a close friend. All this, <laughs> I'm meant to be, be nothing at all, and I've talked about everything else, but it is all to do with learning how to observe oneself all the while and see where identity comes in. And especially socially now, there's a lot of movement in the world to a, a narcissistic uh, uh, identity politics, which is you can, you can learn it, you can have sympathy, and you can love people and accept people for whatever they think they are. But if you want to transcend identity, you've got to see beyond these things, look beyond these things. Now how we meditate, we have all lots of... As I say, I spent years, you spend, you spend years doing different techniques to get somewhere for self, because self wants to get somewhere. But in actual fact, in the end of meditations, is to learning how, like the monk was saying last night, I mean, he's learning to just relax, relax. And then the mind becomes more peaceful, more silent. And even when it's not silent, you can see beyond it. Like we can see, see all you in this room. Ajahn Samedo uses this analogy a lot. And I, I always used him before I knew him. I was into all this. Was because one of, the, one of the things of being a dyslexic RT type is we've got, I know that most dyslexic have got big space awareness. So I always had to think about space. So when a gents made you know, you've got this room, everybody is in this room. I can be aware of all you lot, but I can also be aware of the space. The space. Someone said to me once, how do you deal with someone comes to you with lots of problems? What do you do? A therapist asked me, someone comes to you, and they've got lots of problems, and they go on, how do you stay out of it? You know, all this sort of thing. And I say, well, usually when they're talking to me, I focus on the space between them and them and me. So I listen intently. It's all going in, but my attention's on the space between us. Then we can come out clear. Then it allows that person, it allows that person to see their own predicament. That's what good therapy is, good psychotherapist. doesn't tell people what to do. It sets up the conditions whereby that person can see and cure their self. 
can see their self, allow, allow the parts of themselves to come up. From the, from the American Indian thing, um, there's a nice saying that says, it's like the slowing down of the mind, whenever the dialogue stops, Whenever the dialogue, whenever the dialogue stops, uh, yeah, whenever the dialogue stops, the world collapses, and strange facets of ourselves surface, as if formerly heavily guarded by the words. And those those facets of ourselves is that is that psychophysical memory, which has got nothing to do with thinking. It's to do with allowing everything settling into being. To be into being. As a Zogzhen, if I give retreat uh, meditation instruction, I, I love this thing from a, a Tibetan master from about the, he's walking around the planet and about when Napoleon was going around. And uh, he says, keep the body straight, keep the voice silent, as to your mind, don't bind it, let it rest at ease. Let consciousness relax completely without aim without fabrication, in just clear awareness. He says, if intellect does not interfere with the state, the view will arise as clear as the sky, naturally. Now that's not the view of an opinion. I mean, in the Eightfold Path we have right view, which is you have the intellectual right view, belief in Kama, the Buddhas, and you've got intellectual things. But the other right view, which opens up to a whole a whole lot of other way of knowing which has got nothing to do with language is done by relaxing into awareness. Then we are in the opportunity where we can see where we keep manifesting ourselves moment by moment, day by day, our relationship with other people. And the more we do that, then our relationship to our environment, to our pe- to other people People say, how can I care when I'm getting somewhere? You know, the other day I was peaceful, but then I wasn't peaceful. And everybody's looking for a bright light. They wake up in the morning, there'll be a bright light, that'll never go away. <laughs> you put the light on. Um, but in actual fact, the way you measure your progress is that you see your relationship to other people and your, your relationship to your senses, your life, your wife, your children, your friends, your sense impressions, everything like that. And the thing that determines that is your sense of, your sense of self. You know, your sense of self comes in and judgmental. It's all conditioned thing. You can see it all. You can, you can start to see it all, like, like understanding a computer program. It takes certain conditions, it takes certain conditions to do it. But it's not impossible. I mean, well, that's impossible to do all that. No, it just takes sitting patiently and just takes sitting patiently, observing, doing good, refrain from doing evil, doing all the sort of things that most spiritual people uh, talk about. <laughs> the Buddha said, "Don't cling to that which is that which is in time." We take things apart in order to see the Buddha. In mystical Christianity, <laughs> in mystical. In mystical Christianity, they split the stick. There's Jesus, which is lay not up thy treasure where wrath and where rust and moth moth do corrupt. Same same message. Same message. I'm not saying that Jesus was the Buddha. I'm a Buddha. I'm not, I'm not a Buddha. I, you know, my whole faith is in the Buddha. But I've got no complaints with Jesus. 
he demonstrated the mystical side, the mystical symbolism within all that is tremendous. Tremendous. It's not just a bloke hanging on a cross. There's a whole mystical uh, meditative message in it. Beautiful message. You've got to be able to read it. So I offer this. I've gone beyond a bit. And then I'll, I'll finish, but then I'll open for question. Oh, no, I didn't. So Ajahn Smedo's taught for all these years and it, it, all the titles of the talks, he always come back to the same thing. <laughs> Do good, refrain from evil, purify your mind. And then all the, all the questions get answered. <laughs> Any questions? Don't be shy if you've got a question or you've got a comment or a complaint or you disagree, it's perfectly all right. No. Yeah. Um, as I understand what you're saying, he taught in a certain way. He taught in a certain way to always bring someone back to seeing here, transcending self. He didn't make big comments about everything else. Mm. Like, there's actually another moment, he's not here long run, but always wanted me to get into debates. That he, he, he had a lot of, um, Christian mysticism, uh, my, uh, mysticism in him. So he always wanted to be, well, well, the Buddha didn't teach there wasn't a God. His method of his teaching was his teach, but he didn't say whether there wasn't a, uh, I said, well, leave that for you to, even <laughs> so leave that with you. You know, because a lot of that is all speculation. But he was what the Buddha teach, what the Buddha taught was the transcendence, transcendence of identity. So, so if you go, if you're going to identify, whether identify, whether it be man, woman, whatever, it's all an identification. You know, I can say conventionally I'm a monk, but in my mind is I direct to be identified with nothing. You know. Sometimes someone will come here, like that little illustration I said. I, you know, I, I come here and I ask people say, "What?" Well, yeah, I said, "Well, I'm a Buddhist monk." And some people have come here and I've said, I said "Oh, are you a Buddhist?" And I said, "I'm whatever you." You know, okay. You know, it's it's another case of it's your turn to make the tea. I think this person wants me to recognise he's obviously a Soto partner. He wants me to acknowledge that he's wise and he's out there. <laughs> and I've seen someone question, you know, quite a great guru in that way. And everything the man is saying, he's trying to put it in such a way. I'm not saying that you're saying that, I'm just saying this is an example. And the guru isn't having it. Because the guru can see that the man is not, he's just being flash. You know. <laughs> Mm 
well, there's many, there's many stories like that. It's like someone asking him, does that man exist? And he says, he's neither in the future nor in, nor in the past nor in between. And then there's the famous woman, woman, because I don't know all the names, I forget names, I'm terrible with names. I've got a special part of my brain which gets brains and gets names as gone. So, for some reason. Um, um, yeah, he said, Mara's looking for the consciousness of that nun. So, the, the nun is Allah gone. But so someone says, well, that doesn't infer it's not nothing. <laughs> you know. But what it does infer, it's got nothing to do with this universe. So, you tell me about something outside the universe. <laughs> does it matter? I don't care if there's nothing, personally. <laughs> I don't care if there's nothing. You know? I mean, you've always got something. Even when you're unconscious asleep, you wake up in the morning, there's a sense that there's something there. That your consciousness is a certain kind of consciousness in sleep, like a Bawanga consciousness. And suddenly when someone experiences a, an experience which is like a, a blackout, with a, like a light switch going off in the universe, one knows that there's something beyond that unconsciousness. Not something, that, that, um, that, that there is something that exists. Love that. But yeah, he didn't, he didn't discuss these things. <laughs> you said the world argues with me I don't argue with the world because he'd free and dropped the law <laughs> you know they said, well he didn't he didn't say there wasn't a God he just Ajahn Chah just said my name my name Ajahn Chah said let go a little bit little bit of peace let go a lot lot of peace let go completely complete peace Yeah. I say, I, even though I speak like that, like I make it very clear, it doesn't mean that I'm phobic of these situations, but I can, I'm, I'm wise enough to see that what's happening, the confusion, the total confusion. You know, now you have a hundred, and a lot of it is social, is social. First you had a few people, then you got everybody, and then everybody got demanding their children, having their children operated on. Because, because, you know, my, my, my son brought up his, his daughter Cindy Dull one day, so we better get him surgically altered. That's happening. I do check up on these things. I see these things. Because I, I see there's certain psychologists, evolutionary psychologists, who I see their work. You know, are spiritual people as well. Any more questions? See, Lau, because I've only got one ear. My other hearing aid is, when you get to my age, you get cramp, hearing aids. No, he transcended identity. He wasn't non-binary. Is he? Well, for you, if he was non-binary, you can say he was non-binary. Huh? In the Diamond, sorry. In the Diamond Sutra, yeah. he says, he's always questioned, he said, if it was said that I was born, became enlightened and taught for so many years, Subhidhi, yeah. 
Would that be true? Subhadi says no. No. He says that's correct. Yeah. Because it cannot be defined. Yeah. And any definition we put on ourselves, yeah. we become the view with a viewer. You're not definable. You're not definable. You're not definable. Well, we're not definable. No. So, even a person that says they don't want to define themselves, it's define themselves in a way. I get what yeah, you're saying. Yeah, but usually, there. usually what I found is that when people say they're non-binary, they don't mean it in the way that the Buddha meant it. They don't usually mean it in that way. That's an opinion, though. It is an opinion. Yeah, yeah. it's my one. Yeah, could yeah, be but right, they, could be wrong. <laughs> which means that they can have their opinion. Yeah, be wrong. it could be right, could be wrong. Yeah. No, I admit. You know, it causes emotion. What I'm yeah. saying is, it causes emotions because we identify that they're wrong. Can't we just yeah. leave them? Yeah. If somebody doesn't, want, if somebody wants to identify as whatever they want to be, black, white, yeah. a woman, a man, a guinea pig, a goldfish. But it's a bit like the person who comes here and I sort of say, "Are oh, you a Buddhist?" or something, like that, and they say, "Well, I'm." I know, but I mean... The Buddha didn't go. Well, the Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. Uh, well, you could say that as well. He wasn't a Buddhist, yeah. yeah. You can say that. You know, any... You're just getting flash. No. <laughs> but anything we define him as, he can't be defined. But we can only know that in silence, can't we? We only know it in silence. When we're not... Well, I don't know. I don't know how, mo I don't know how most people who are non-binary define themselves. Well, it's non-definable. I mean, now they're saying that Joan of Arc was non-binary and she referred to herself as we. So it's still personal. It's very much personal. Only in words, but not in reality. Well, I don't know. Reality, we can have... Many people can have an experience which they say it was intuitive, not self. But it wasn't. No, but that's still self because it's an identity. No, but, but, but many people can say, I've experienced not self. And then someone else can say, yeah, I've experienced not self. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they're having the same experience. It's how they, it's how they, what they say about their experience. No, but the experience. On retreats, I've had people on experience very clear samadhi, and then they're already talk, they're talking in very refined terms about nibbana, mm -hmm. and I've just said, forget nibbana, yeah. just carry on meditating, don't pick it up. Mm. Still an identity. Mm. So if you want to think, if you want to say the Buddha was non-binary, that's all right. I don't mind. Well, I thought <laughs> if you if you if we define non-binary as non-definition, yeah. then we could say the Buddha was that, but that would still be a definition. But that's probably what he's pointing towards, because when they ask him what it is, he answers in silence. Understands only... desire. Yeah. I mean, there's many there are many people define say the arahant. Does the arahant feel? Does the arahant have sexual desire? Does he have the normal desires of, a, say, a male body? Does he have the desire for? Does he have the desire, or doesn't he have? So there's different opinions. Doesn't arahant feel the normal hang, but he's not attached to them, or does he feel them, or does he not feel them? I mean, you can have a whole debate about these things. Hmm. You know, I've got my own thing about yeah, it. That that that. Someone who, but then that's my own thing. That mm. if if someone is fully enlightened, then their mind reflects a pure mind reflects conditionality. So if someone has a pure, when the mind is pure, say in vipassana, what it does it immediately. It's a lot of people say, I was I was really angry. I was really angry, but I was mindful. No. Now another monk might disagree with me, some great teacher might disagree with me, but this is 
I'm talking about just my experience. So, they say I was really angry, but I was mindful. Well, to me, when that, what happens is when mindfulness is clear, really clear mindfulness, it becomes like a mirror. A mirror reflects something. Right? So, when someone gets really angry, they get angry and it, dark, it darkens the mirror. When the mirror becomes bright, the, the conditionality of the anger starts to reveal itself. It shows it's a nature. It looks right into the nature of the anger. Then what happens is the anger either goes quickly or it dissipates or it watches it move. It can see it move. But the mind that is seeing it is not angry. It's, it's already the, ang- the anger is revealing its conditionality. And usually when that happens, it happens usually very quickly. And usually if someone gets angry, it gets blinded, it starts to get blinded again. To a certain extent, not to... Like you'd say, a mind, a real mindful is freed from great hatred and delusion. To me, it's freed from greed and hatred, but the delusion is still, is still there to an extent that you have very refined subliminal stuff going on. You know, like a fly on a pane of glass. You can think it's outside, but there's, there's a pane of glass there. You know, so to say whether an arahant, oh, this is a discussion. I'm glad it's not being videoed. <laughs> um, to just say the arahant, you know, he feels all this is, you know, he's, an arahant is a hundred percent mindful. So he's like a, he's like a, um, I think it was Ajahn Amra, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I think it's like an arahant. You get a non-stick frying pan, you throw an egg at it, it just goes, <laughs> The egg doesn't stick there, it just, you know. But the Arahant would know that the anger had no gender. An Arahant wouldn't even think about his agenda, his gender. He wouldn't even be thinking about it. No. But I'm just, I'm, I personally, now you've brought up this subject, it, sounds, it might sound very boring or whatever, but um, it's quite nice to be corrupted, but, but, from my own reflection, I must say, I would say, I would, I'm usually a bit suspicious when people start talking about their non-binary. I've heard people discussing all these these issues, so I'm always a bit, I'm always a bit edgy around it. I don't think there are hunts. <laughs> I'm usually suspicious of the hunts. I've been near, I've been near the people I, I have experienced that I believe in hunts. Uh, they're a different colour of beard, usually. But, but they're not saying that. The only reason I brought the topic up was because... Well, they're just not... They're just not... They're not bothered. Arjun, we can't say they're not because... They're not even bothered with the issue. No, they're human beings yeah, and they're, they're suffering deeply. They're in the human body, but they're not even, they're not even with the issues of it. It's like Jesus in, in the world, but not of it. You know... Well, so, so you can all make make up your own mind. That one. <laughs> you can all make your own mind. All I all I'm commenting on is you know we could debate say non-binary or what you're saying, which is nice, very nice. You bring it up, but but all I'm saying is that we're living in a time when you now have a hundred different identities, right? And it's cause it's causing big problems. It's going to cause big problems. This is causing big problems. I know it's causing big problems. I know university professors who are having problems with it. And it isn't that those university professors are stupid, bigoted people. 
you could, we've probably got more than 100 identities. Well, I don't. Well, we've which, all got identities, yeah, well, you yeah, can carry on. But that, thousands. Which, that which knows that cannot thousands. be identified. Yeah, yeah, you can say thousands, but registered, there's about 100. Yeah, but that which knows any identity cannot be identified. Mm. That's what I was saying, that's what I was pointing at, that well, we're, all, binary. Yeah. we're all the same. You never escape, you never escape from identity. Um, what can I give an example? Give an example. There's a, there's an, I'm trying to think, there's a very good example which shows you, you're never out of it until you're out of it. So whatever you can say, whatever you say, you're still involved in it while you're involved in it. You know, you say, well, I don't, I'm trying to think of, the per there's a perfect example which will, which will put that out, but I can't think of it offhand. Sorry. No, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> We're still friends. <laughs> of course. That's the one thing about this yeah. religion, we can have debate. Yeah. Which is beautiful. Yeah. What are you doing? Oh, I think we're going to start. So I just uh, wanted to add in terms of a Buddhist perspective, because I went to um, college for a good two years with one of my closest friends who is non-binary. And of course, I thought a lot on about the subject. And what I think it really is, is a rejection of perceptions that come with gender. I don't think it's a rejection to say I am literally, I oh. don't have this or I don't that's have that. Near, yeah, that's near. It's, a, it's understanding that the perceptions of what a man or a woman is doesn't yeah. define yeah. yourself. And while it still does come back to a self, which we know is a result of many different illusions or, com or confusions yeah. or whatever else, it is somewhat of a stepping stone it's towards what? somewhat of a stepping stone. I can't hear that. <laughs> Somewhat of a um, stepping stone. Stepping stone. Yeah, to to realizing that the self is what we perceive and not what is. Yeah. No, that's. I mean, yeah. what, you, what yeah. you said at first is quite. I can understand that. That that's your. The, that's the person you know has said that they're not into defining one one or the other. That in itself is a definition. <laughs> you never escape. You don't escape. You know, you see, you say, I'm someone who doesn't, I'm, I'm the person who doesn't identify with anything, you're still identified. You identify with the person who doesn't identify with something, you don't escape. No. But the actual living being, as a being, that's what's the thing, that's what transcends. You understand? So, yeah, interesting. Got a thought on it? <laughs> He's on retreat. When do you finish your retreat? He's got another week, so I've got can't talk to him. He can tell me now. Shut up, Ajahn. I'm on retreat. <laughs> <laughs> all, all the only reason why I mentioned it. The reason why I mentioned it is that, say, the Buddha. In a lot now, you have got this identity where everybody's identifying with everything. Through through through. Uh, through kind of dismantling stuff and uh, postmodernism and things like this, and there's going to be a lot of confusion because of it. Especially now, you've got the, the the definition the definition of identity. You first have two, three, four, five. Then you got eighty. Then you got this. Then you got you got hundred. About hundred now. Thank you for the talk today, Ajahn. Sorry. Thank you for the talk today. Um, it was lovely to get 
also your perspective on um, the Queen, because typically I wasn't a very big fan, oh. and I've deliberately stayed away from yeah. the news. So um, it was interesting, oh. and um, I want to know. Um, you made some comments on how things are going to get confusing. And I just wondered, uh, did the Buddha make any commentary on... The Buddha lived in like interesting times, social times. Mm. Did he make any comment on where society would end up? Well, in, in Buddha, I mean, I'm not that far into all the studies of it to know, you know. But, but um, in Buddhist cosmology, is the, it's always the downward trend, you know, like the Buddha said, his own teaching in the last 5,000 years. And then people, other people, like in Hindu, they say this is uh, what, okay. you know, it's coming near the, near the end of a cycle, something like that. But in actual fact, in all honesty, having said that about, you know, I'm not only talking about identity politics with with human beings, I'm talking about social identity politics and everything like this. So it's not just that with this gender stuff. Um, yeah, they say that, but in actual fact, yeah, even though the Buddha said that, I wouldn't disagree with the Buddha or anything like that. But in actual fact, when you do look around, we know more about wars because of media. We know so much now. Every day you hear about the wars and the problems. But especially in the West, now, I mean, even in the world, apart from wars, you know, say, people's life expectancy, everything like that, people are actually, the world is a lot better off, socially, in many social ways, medical, in many, many ways, the world is a lot better off. But you know, even if you go back a hundred years, you go back to a hundred, you go back a hundred years in England, you know, the conditions people were living in, I mean, we, I, I mean, I'm, I'm an historian, you know, I've studied kind of history a lot, you know, from pre-dynastic Egypt, right up, medieval. First time, people often wonder what I, you know, they say, oh, you're a Buddhist. I said, well, I can't, you know, my first pocket money when I was a kid, I wanted my mum, my dad to go down the metal shop because I wanted a suit of armour. I became obsessed with armour. And in my artwork, in my profession, I became the one who was so good at chrome in my art because of armour. You know, and then I was obsessed with the French Revolution, so I don't know what I was in past lives. I made a model of the guillotine for my, <laughs> you know, I know about big wars in the past. So a, a Thai woman, a, a very famous woman, came here a little while ago, Ajahn Jasaro. He went to go off and he went round the corner and the woman in the car, some Thais, because they're quite perceptive, Thais, are more perceptive than we know, but um, I walked around the corner and Jayasaro, who I've known since he was a layman, I know his whole family, said, um, uh, oh, this is the monk who knows Egyptology. Well, and she said, isn't that funny? She said, when he came around the corner, she said, I saw an Egyptian warrior. So, you know, she didn't see me. So I don't know what I was in past lives. Talking about identity, you know, I don't know what I was in past lives. But, you know, if you look back, and I've got these things like the Middle Ages, I mean, you imagine... Even 200 years ago, people were chucking their toiletry out of top windows and it's dreadful, dreadful what people were dying of. And my brother, I wasn't into it, but my brother's really been into ancestry stuff. You know, I've never kind of mocked him. I've said, hell, you're making up a catalogue. I know my ancestors back to about 1500. 
I see you're making a catalogue of dead people. You know, it's a telephone directory of dead people. But I wouldn't say that to him because it's his busy life. But he, he can tell. He said, oh, you can tell that year this amount died in that family because of the deaths of the time. So in many ways, we're a hell of a lot better off. But we don't know what the future, I think if the future does end, I think it'll end in a bang. Because <laughs> you've got some quite mentally unstable people around with big bombs. So I don't know. Would you know? Yeah, there is, isn't there? The, 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 I don't think the Buddha held out on great. <laughs> That's why it's imperative to really try to get yourself through. Thank you. <laughs> I heard that Prince Charles. I heard that Prince Charles last year he had um, just last year he had five hundred appointments. I said to the monks the other day, and we don't mind giving talks. It's only the fact we're a bit apprehensive, you know. We never plan. I never plan a talk. So I always, when I come in, I'm a bit, you know, we all are a little bit, um, you know. But we like to do. We like to do things. But I said to the monks the other day. Um, uh, morning things. We had, and I get a reflection. I said, "You think?" And I looked at the monks and the nuns, and I said, "You think what it must be like?" I said that you sort of "Oh, you've got to give a talk today. Uh, tomorrow, can you go to a school? And then tomorrow afternoon, can you visit old people's home? And then we've had a phone call. Can you visit someone in hospital? And then next day, can you do this? And then the next day, and then next week, you're going to do a retreat. And that that was the Queen's. That's been the Queen's diary, apart from when she goes." You know, she goes to Balmoral and then she have a rest. That was her rest place. But sometimes she wouldn't sleep in her home bed three nights in a row because I was going places for 70 years, you know. And I mean, you know, if someone, if a monk, if the abbot, if Ajahn Amro said that to one of us or one of the nuns, we'd say, oh God, you know, give us a break, you know. You know, I'm only 24. <laughs> you know, so one after the other. So if you reflect like that, I mean, my mum, bless her, she used to say, well, she don't have a problem with arthritis and all that. And she lives in a palace. And The minute you die, when the Queen died, she lost all those palaces. <laughs> I said something the other day, my friend who was gay, he was very wealthy, he had three, three flats in London. But he was obsessed with, I mean, I'm quite a perfectionist, but he was obsessed with perfection. And I, I saw him in a silk shop in Bangkok. He came through Bangkok. We went to Jim Thompson's silk shop. You know, and he's got a <laughs> silk Thompson's silk shop. He used to take me because I'm a monk, so he knew that if I went in with him, they'd immediately go, oh, Ajahn, sit me down with a Pepsi cola. He'd get good treatment. You know. He'd call produce his monk card. <laughs> but um, I'd seen him with two pieces of cloth, you know, and he's going... Tone in that. And then he pick up another one because I've got all these refined tones. I wonder if that'll go with that. Do you think that goes with that? <laughs> I thought they say, like, I'm a perfectionist, but either of them are doing. <laughs> and I mean, three weeks before he died, he was having a flat done. They were putting the tiles down and he was covered in dust and everything because they couldn't get this tile dead level. And I actually put my arms around him and I said, don't let it kill you. One flat, one flat you've had done up has nearly killed you. Don't let it kill you. He died three, three weeks after. 
you know, just just all just too much, too much. He died of an aneurysm. So at the moment the Queen dies, she loses all that and lands up in a box. Same as all of us. We all land up in a box. I was going to make my coffin. Monk at Chithurst has made his coffin. He's made his own coffin. It's in kit form. I was going to make mine in kit form and have two eyes on the front, like an Egyptian. You know, Egyptian eyes. Right up on the top of the pyramids. Looking out into eternity. There's a lovely film. Dear, dear, a lot going on in it. I'm turning you on to all these things. There's a lovely film. It's a, a French film that is Arab and uh, subtitled called Baba Aziz. And it's about a Sufi. I don't know if anybody's seen it. A Sufi on his last walk across the desert. He's with his granddaughter. It's a beautiful film. And he dies in the end. He's walking. You've seen it. You've seen it. That's me. I bought that for Ajahn Samedo. And he said to me, Imano, that's the best film I've ever seen. He said, where do you get your films from? I said, there's a couple more I know about, but they're usually Russian or Arab or something. And uh, he walks across and uh, there's a scene where he comes to his grave. I don't know if I'm depressing anybody. He comes to his grave and um, there's another person, that, there's another person who's, there's another story travels with him about a young man. This young man loses everything. The, the old man, the Sufi, was a prince. It's called the Prince who con- I get emotional now. Um, the prince who contemplated his soul. <laughs> Can't talk now. <laughs> you have to wait now. I have to recover. <laughs> so I can't talk about non-binary. I get too emotional about everything. Um, uh, yeah, and they go in search of him. I tell you this little bit. This will turn you on. You'll be saying to me, "What's the name of that film?" Um, and. Uh, yeah, he's a prince who goes off, something takes him into the desert, and he's by a pond. And uh, there's this old Sufi sitting near him, and they find him, they go in search of him, and they find him. And the Sufi said, don't disturb him. <laughs> he said, don't disturb him. He said, what is it? <laughs> Sorry about this. He said, don't disturb him, he's contemplating his soul. He's looking into, into this... <laughs> he says he's contemplating his soul. <laughs> if you disturb him, it might take flight. Beautiful. And then it's the story of him. He becomes an old man, and then at a certain point, he gets to his grave. And the other man, young man who's lost everything, lands up sitting next to him. I can't remember it word for word. I can, you know, I've got that kind of memory. And he sits and he says. Uh, I even forgot his name, it's not like Abdul. <laughs> you know, he says, Abdul, he said, I've been waiting for you. He said, waiting for me. He says, yeah, to witness my death. He said, you're dead. He said, when I am so afraid of death. He said, when a child, when a baby in his, is, when the baby's in a womb. He said, if you could say to the baby, outside, there are valleys and sky, a great sky and a blazing sun. He said, and you stay there in that darkness. He said, the baby would be too frightened to come out and stay in the womb and stay in there. It's worded much better than Omdin, it's poetic, it's Arabic. And uh, he said, you stay in there. He said, 
This is like us when we are frightened of death, for our fear of death. And the young guy says, but, 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 uh, Baba, he says, I'm, I, um, I'm so frightened of death. Death is an end to everything. And he says, my son, <laughs> my son, he said, how can something have an end which never had a beginning? And he said, rejoice, he said, for tonight is my wedding night. He said, your wedding night? He said, yeah, for tonight I marry eternity. Very beautiful. <laughs> when Ajahn Samadhi, I saw Ajahn Samadhi, he said, that's how I want to die. I said, yeah, too true, Ajahn. <laughs> that's how I want to die. But most people will be, oh, give me a paracetamol. Give me another paracetamol. <laughs> he died peacefully. It's a beautiful story, isn't it? The wording is very lovely. It's about, the whole thing is very lovely. <laughs> I saw the film. I went. To, I deliberately got the film because I saw the trailer, and the trailer made me cry. Because <laughs> he's talking about he's with his granddaughter. They come up from under some sand. They've been hiding in some sand. They come out, and the little girl in one of the trailers. There are many trailers to it. The one I saw. It's got lovely music. The little girl is saying, Mommy. and the, the Sufi is talking about a party they're going to in the desert. And the party, in actual fact, symbolizes everything. That, that there is actually a party in the desert, and it's a party for Sufis, all different Sufis from all over the place. And the little girl's asking him questions, and she says, Are people coming? He said, Yeah, people are coming from everywhere. And you see him walking across the desert. I'm sobbing at that point, you know. And uh, she says, Will they know how to get there? He said, no, everybody who's meant to be there will be there. <laughs> it's a very beautiful film, isn't it? Beautiful film. It's a beautiful film. Baba Aziz. Do you want me to write it down? <laughs> B-A-B. And actually, for a friend of mine who has become Islam, has become Buddhist, um, uh, Islam, his name is, uh, his name is Baba something. But Baba Aziz is B A B A B A B and then Aziz A Z I Z Baba Aziz. He made three films, French, but Arabic, I think he's real good. And the other the other film's called The Dove's Locks ne Necklace. That's nearly four o'clock. Any more questions? Huh? Yeah, I've arrested. No, I'm all right. I get energetic. <laughs> I can't speak Thai. Pass that day, my day. So, I hope you understood me. Someone said, someone said about um, giving a retreat, you know, on on screen, and uh, one monk gave a retreat on screen. The last day, he had people. People come on screen who had been on the retreat, you know, and he said, "Oh, some man in Pakistan came on and said, I really enjoyed the retreat.'" And I said, "Oh, I couldn't give a retreat on thing because anybody who lives about thirty miles outside Luton won't be able to understand anything I'm saying because <laughs> they got my accent." Bless <laughs> you. No, I think someone else doesn't.